You know, um, our, our wives, mothers have a wonderful sense of humor. And, uh, you know, while we may, as men, wear the pants in the family, or this time the shirts, we know who the puppet masters are. All right. So, so what a joy it is to have that. You know, this is a nightmare for most women. They, they have dreams about wearing the same dress or outfit to an event that somebody else is going to wear, and, and it horrifies them, right? And so their nightmares become our realities is what takes place. So you think about those dreams, um, and, and, and it's interesting. Um, dreaming is, is something that we do all the time. Matter of fact, there was a gentleman who had a dream that, uh, that he was a really dedicated, hardworking, um, church-going individual. He put his faith in Christ, and he went to sleep one night, and he dreamed that he'd passed away, and he found himself approaching the gates to heaven, and as he was approaching, he noticed a big sign over this gate that said, entrance requirements, 1,000 points. He thought, oh, that's interesting. What, what does that mean? And so he looked a bit confused and worried about that. And so, you know, he, he, he approaches the guarding angel there at the gate, and he says, that, that seems a little high, doesn't it? I mean, do you think I possibly have a, a, a chance to, to accumulate that many points to get into heaven? Well, the angel kindly replied, well, you know, tell me about yourself and, and, and what, what have you done? And, and we'll see where those points kind of lay out there for you. So he thought for a second and, and he said, okay, he, he, this is what I can think. I, I'm an immersed believer. I, for, 20, for 32 years, I've done that. And for the past 25 years, I've been teaching Sunday school at, at church. And, and, and I was a youth chaperone for junior high kids, as Alan just mentioned, you know, those youth, junior high kids. And whenever they needed me, and, and I was a regular member of the praise team. I even showed up at church one Sunday wearing the shirt that my wife wanted me to wear. I mean, these are under things that we do. And the angel says, well, that's wonderful. Well, let me see. How many points does that accumulate? And starts going through all the numbers and things and says, well, that's one point. <laughs> well, uh, he, he became worried at that point. He started to perspire. And, and he went on. He, he said, well, well, I tithed on all of my income. And, and matter of fact, sometimes I even gave more than what is required. And, and I served as an elder in the church, and, and I served on the finance committee and the building committee. And, and, and I attended every workday that the church ever had. And, and I mowed the grass, and I, and, and I painted, and I made repairs. And, and at every fellowship dinner, I was there early to set up the tables and the chairs, and I stayed late to, to take them down and put them away. And he looked expectantly at the angel, and the angel smiled. He said, oh, that's wonderful. You've got another point. He says, now you have a total of two. Well, the man looked like he was about to go into shock. And, and, and so all of a sudden, he, he spoke rapidly with a sense of, of desperation. He said, I've invited people to church often. And, and, and sometimes, you know, I even went calling with the preacher to go visit people. And, and, and I won quite a few people to, to Christ. And, and, and I supported the camp program like you're going to support as you volunteer to help out as a senior high, you know, sponsor there, right? And he says, he's, and for a while, I was a forwarding agent for a missionary family. And I took care of their finances. He says, I never swore. I never drank. I, 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 never, I never smoked or cheated on, on my income taxes or anything. And the angel tried to speak encouragingly to him. He says, my, you have such a wonderful record that you've, you've done of your good works. That's worth another point. You now have three. 
Now the man was, he was just depressed at this point because three points, after all that I've done, three points. He says, I may as well give up. He said, there's no way that I'm ever going to be good enough to get into heaven. There's no way I can earn a thousand points. It just isn't going to happen. It seems impossible for me or anybody else to get there except by the grace of God. And the angel says, oh, now, now, wait a second. You said grace. Oh, you're at the wrong gate. This is the law gate. This one you have to have by all your works up to a thousand points. But the grace gate is over there. That long line of people. To get in there, it's, it's free. Grace is offered to all of us. You don't need any points. At that point, the man woke up from his dream and found himself wearing one of these shirts. <laughs> right? All right. So we, we kind of get it. But it gave him a whole new outlook on life. And you see, we're starting to read and study through the book of Romans. And I'm going to pray and I'm going to hope that as we read through the book of Romans, that we will have uh, this, this, this new outlook on life because of how it presents the wonderful gospel message that brings salvation to all people, not by anything that they can do to achieve it, but by the grace and the goodness of God. We've been set free. Like most, if not all, all of Paul's letters, as he's writing here in the book of Romans to the New Testament, it's written to a specific audience. And like a lot of his other, it's, it's a church that he specifically wants to address. This church is in the capital city of the empire in Rome. And so he wants to, 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 to write to them. Um, while Paul had never been to Rome, he knew some people that were there in that church that were deeply involved in that church, it seems, because he kind of throws in some greetings to them at the end of his letter. But he's never been there. He has this hope and this desire to get there. And, and hopefully, from his perspective, it'll be in the near future. He just got one more little trip he needs to make back to Jerusalem, and then he could probably be on his way to Rome. Now, the opening section of this letter verses 1 through 5, contains just some words of greetings, and we'll dig through those as well. And then it goes into some general personal comments, verses 8 through 15, which is going to be the main text that we're going to look at today, 1 through 15. Now, contained within those verses, there, there are some very important doctrinal teachings that are quite relevant for Christians, not only in Rome, but for Christians here in Union. To begin... Verses 1 through 5. Let's look at Paul's call by God. God's call is, is, in essence, threefold. And so he tells us here in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. Now, to begin with, Paul is called to be a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, the Greek word is doulos. It's often translated servant or bondservant, but a more specific meaning is this. It is slave. So Paul, what he's saying is, I'm a slave of Jesus. I don't know if many of us introduce ourselves that way anymore, but that's who he is. He's a slave of Christ. Now, there was an estimated 6 million slaves in Rome around this time. All right. It's a lot of slaves. And a slave 
was looked upon as a piece of property, not a person, but just something that could be bought and sold and given away or, or whatever, just disposed of. But a, a slave wasn't someone, but something. And, 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 and so in his loving devotion to Jesus, Paul has sold himself into slavery by his faith in Christ. And involves a, an interesting part, being the servant, being a slave, because what that does is, is he's telling us that if we really want to be a Christian, if we want to be recognized, as he speaks later, a saint, being a servant of Jesus is imperative. That's who we are, because you're going to call him Lord which signifies he owns you. Now, in Romans chapter 1, verse 7, he says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're all Christ's slaves because we have all accepted him as Lord. If we call upon him as Lord, we put ourselves in that position of that doulos. Romans 10.9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But see, if we confess him as Lord, we're confessing ourselves as servants. The second thing is this. God called Paul to be an apostle. Now that's a word that we really don't use too much in our normal everyday language today. We, we, we hear about it in the Bible and we speak about it in church, but this word in the Greek is apostolos. It's a generic term for anyone who is sent on a mission. I mean, it's somebody who's a messenger, or, or they're the sent one, or maybe we might use the term today as an emissary. They're going in place of somebody with authority who's given them a purpose and a mission to do something. So we have these apostles who are established here, and Paul is an apostle. Now it's often, that word is often refers to a specific group of men, matter of fact, 12 of them, that Jesus has designated to be his apostles in this world and in ministry. And Paul stresses that he qualifies in this respect. Now, what does it take to be an apostle? Well, first, you've got to be chosen by Jesus. That's it. You, I can't just say, I'm an apostle. It's not going to happen. To be an apostle of Jesus, he has to choose me to be his apostle, to be the one that he is sending out. All right? Second, they also had to be an eyewitness of Jesus in his ministry, and, and, and especially of his resurrection, that he is no longer in the grave dead, that he's back alive and living. And so Paul says, I fit because Jesus called me and separated me to be an apostle. As a matter of fact, I've seen him since he died and is now living again. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he may ask his questions. He says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 8 and 9, he says, last of all, as to one who is untimely born... He, also, he appeared also to me. Now listen how he puts this. He says, for I am the least of the apostles. Why? He says, I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, and yet Jesus calls me his apostle. 
An apostle is somebody who is endowed with the Holy Spirit. And Paul was very conscious of his own special guidance by the Spirit of God. Matter of fact, it was the Spirit of God who was not enabling Paul to get to Rome, though he wanted to get there. Fourth, an, an apostle was, were given teaching and ruling authority over the whole church. Paul has this authority over all the church, just as Peter and, and John and James and Matthew and Thomas and all the other apostles. He's got the same authority. So when he speaks, it carries with it the power and the authority of Christ. Unless he throws in some kind of parenthetical statement, this is I, not, you know, not, not Christ. Finally, apostles are given special miraculous powers as signs of their authority. Now, now Simon, the, the magician, when he became a Christian, he noticed there was something different about these apostles and their authority, and we see that in the book of the Acts. And they, when they laid their hands on people, all of a sudden, those people received something. And he wanted that. He wanted that ability to be the apostle, to carry on and forward this miraculous things, but he's not permitted to do that. Now, Paul, as we see in all of this, it's important for us to note that, that as an apostle of Jesus Christ, when he speaks with full authority of Jesus, and so as he's writing the book of Romans and the book of Ephesians and the book of Philippians, whatever letter he's writing to a church or to an individual, it is as if he is writing the very words of God because he's inspired and convicted and compelled by the Spirit to put these words to paper. And these aren't really necessarily his, but they are God's, because we're told that all Scripture is God-breathed, that it emanates from him through us to those who are to receive. Also, God called Paul to preach the gospel. Now, in a sense, we're all called to do this, but I don't think anybody's ever done it like Paul. I mean, in his oral presentations, wherever he went, he was communicating it. And when we read his writings, it is amazing what he has to say. But we recognize in his preaching of the gospel, there is a lot of power that is there. So what is this gospel? Well, it's what the prophets of the Old Testament had promised because God had informed him of this. So in Romans chapter 1, verse 2, it says, when, which he had promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So beginning all the way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15, God communicates with Adam and Eve, and we see that he has set forth a promise that somehow he is going to redeem mankind from their sinful state now to a holy state of righteousness by something he's going to do. And so then, as you weave yourself through the Old Testament pages, we see this promise being fulfilled and being kept by God all the way up to Jesus Christ. So he wants us to understand that God has promised this all the way through the Holy Scriptures to Jesus, and it's the good news about Him. And Paul is emphasizing this, sake, this for the sake of the converted Jews. Some of them felt that they had a, a, a you know, a handle on things. It was theirs to hold, and, and the Gentiles really didn't get this. But we go back through all the scriptures in the Old Testament, and we discover that this good news of the promise of God's redemption wasn't just for the Jewish people. It was for all nations, the whole world, for all time. 
It's going to be for us here in the 21st century. The main point of the gospel is Jesus Christ. And so there's two aspects to this. First off, we look at Jesus as the the son of David in, in his human nature. So Romans 1, 3 says, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. I mean, you can find his human lineage and trace it back through Mary in the book of Luke chapter 3. And we see that, yes, he was all the way traced back to the beginning. We know his genealogy there. So his human nature takes you all the way back through being a son of David. But the gospel also communicates to us about Jesus being the son of God in his divine nature. And so in verse 4 he says, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, he is the Son of God in power. And and, and by virtue of his resurrection from the dead, which was an unprecedented display of his divine authority and power, that he had the ability to conquer even death and Satan, his enemies. So what is it that the gospel declares or appoints him to be the Son of God with power? Well, it wasn't his birth. Those were humble circumstances. It wasn't even the messages and the miraculous things that he did in his ministry. It wasn't even his death on the cross. What gives him the authority to be the true Son of God is his resurrection from the dead. That's where the power lies. And if it were not for his resurrection, we're still in our sins. There's where the authenticity of him being divine is. It's located in his authority even over death. I I think we need to note this. This verse here, verse verse 4, really helps bring an apologetic function to the resurrection, showing it as a proof text for the authority of who he is. So why was Paul called by God to preach this gospel? Well, he tells us it's to bring about obedience of the faith. Paul's goal was to bring people to not just an incomplete faith, but one that is not just a belief statement, but one that is a life-altering statement. That all of a sudden they're doing things based upon their faith. So, We're told that because of our faith, we put on Christ and and we live in Him. Because of my love for my wife, I put on a shirt. All right? And and we do that. So it's not just this assent and acknowledgement. There's action behind it. And so Paul says the faith has to be one that's going to, his gospel is going to bring them to obedience in the faith. Not just because they have a fear of hell or desire to go to heaven, but because they want to be obedient in faith. So that really is kind of like his mission statement. It probably should be the mission statement of every Christian and every church, that we want to live our lives and our faith to grow us in obedience of faith. So if we preach the gospel to bring lost sinners to faith in Jesus Christ, that's important. But we don't preach the gospel just to elicit them in faith but to motivate Christians to live holy lives. 
Paul's later on going to get to a, a passage in Scripture where he's writing to us that says you just, can't, you just can't believe this. You just can't live by the grace and the goodness of God because it overcomes our sins. No. You can't live in sin any longer. There's going to be a change in who you are and in how you live. And, and you move yourself to holiness and acceptance of, of, of godliness in your life rather than just saying, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing because the grace will cover my sins. No, the grace of God motivates me to change my lifestyle, to live and to acknowledge His lifestyle is the best way to go. So the gospel's goal is not to produce just any kind of obedience, but rather it's just to seek the obedience of faith. And see, external obedience that does not grow out of faith never really pleases God. He doesn't want us just to offer up sacrifices. That's not what He wants. He doesn't just want you to go through the motions. He wants you to want it. He wants you to desire to please Him. And so the ultimate goal of preaching the gospel, and everything else we do is, is for the sake of His name, which is what He tells us in verse 5. He says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. Yeah. Chris says one of the marks of being a Christian is our love for one another. I mean, it's, it's, there's an evidence, there's an obvious, people can point it out and they can say, oh, he's different. Oh, look how she's living. They love people that shouldn't be loved. What's unique about them? So uh, let's move on to verse 6 and 7. Paul is greeting the Roman church with this statement, and it's just a simple little greet, greeting that he gives. And, and the Christians at Rome, they include both the Gentiles, the Greeks, but also Jews who have migrated there as well. And so he says to them here in verse 6 and 7, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to, those, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verse 5 is indicating that basically he's, he's, he's encompassing all the Gentiles, that, that word nations. So if you're not Jewish, you're Gentile. So how many of you are Jewish that are with us today? You're, you're Hebrew by your nationality. All right, so you're all Gentiles. It doesn't matter whether you've got Chinese background or you've got European background or you've got South American background. It doesn't matter. You're all Gentiles because you're not Jewish, right? And so he's, he's saying that this gospel message is for all of us, and specifically he's, he's talking to those in Rome, all right? So verse 7 expands Paul's audience to all those in Rome who are loved by God, and that's going to clue everybody, not just the Gentiles, but even the Jews who are living there. And they are called to be saints. Now, in the New Testament, the word saint is used for people who are considered holy or sanctified or set apart by the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul writes to that church and he says this. He says, such as some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the Spirit of God. See, it's that sanctification process that makes us a saint within the New Testament framework. So all Christians, 
All Christians, let me repeat that again, all Christians are saints. Not just some who, who were eminently holy during their lifestyle and then the Roman Catholic Church canonizes them in sainthood after their death. If you are a living, breathing, believing individual in Christ and you have accepted and acknowledged Him as your Lord and as your Savior, you're a saint. That's what the Scripture calls them. All right? We are made holy not by what we've done, but by what He has done because He has sanctified us. Right? So we are called to this holy position. Or we're invited to this holy position through the gospel message. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes them and he says, To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. To this position of holiness, to this position of sanctification, we have been called through the gospel. So Paul greets them with this standard greeting as he calls them saints. He says, grace to you and peace. New Testament greeting is never peace and grace. It's always grace and peace because grace must always precede the peace of God. So we see in, in Romans chapter 5 verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, which is the aspect of grace, we then have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, I mean, this is really the essence of the gospel. The fullness of it is that grace comes, and once we have acknowledged and understand the grace of God, therefore peace is enabled with us, in our fellow man, and with ourselves, in this world. So he says, grace to you, charis humin. That was really the common first century greeting in society, charis humin. Grace to you, the Greeks would say. All right? and, and it was a common way that they met one another. So instead of just saying hi, you know, or good to see you, charis humin. Grace to you. Now the Jews, they didn't say grace to you. They said shalom, peace to you. So Paul now is kind of combining these two statements of greetings. In, in, in most of his letters, he throws them together. And, and there has come this unity then in his process of the church between the Jews and the Gentiles. So grace and peace to you is his new formal greeting to them. So as we move through, we're getting ourselves now into verses 8 through 15. We discover that Paul has this relationship with the Roman church. And he wants this relationship to grow even more. And so, first off, Paul knows about the Roman church because they've become famous. At least that's kind of what he indicates in his letter here. Listen to what he has to say there in verse 8. First, he says, I thank my, my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is pre proclaimed in all of the world. I mean, the, the, the world of Rome at this time understands that there is a church in the Roman city where there are Christians there going on, and their faith is being proclaimed everywhere. You've become famous. So the church in Rome, this, this idea of their faith, the Greek word is, is pistis, it, it also means faithfulness. And in Romans 16, 19, it also says that the church in Rome was also known not only for their faith, but also for their obedience to the faith. And so he writes to them, he says, for your obedience is known to all. 
so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So first off, Paul thanks God that the church in Rome is carrying an identity throughout the world of people who are faithful to God and obedient to Him. Now second, Paul prays for the church at Rome there, verse 9 and 10. He says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at least succeed in coming to you. So we move from a picture of Paul as an apostle to this portrait of a man of prayer that he's always praying without ceasing for the Roman believers in church because he knows that their impact, if they can get to the Caesar, that the world may change. So he's going to continue to lift him up from prayer. So, so his prayer is beneficial in two ways. First off, he's just thanking God for them. You know, and, and, and he's telling God he's heard about their faith and just thank you for putting a church there in Rome. Even ahead of me getting there. Paul is used to going to communities and having to start the church. He's wanting to go to a community where the gospel has already gone. And he is so thankful that it's already working there in Rome. And second, he wishes for a mutually beneficial experience and even a fuller blessing of God that they can experience together when he actually can be with them right there in their presence. Now, Paul also, you see, he wants to visit the church in Rome. And so verse 11, 12, and 13 lay that out for us. He says, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. In order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So, in this coming visit, he has four reasons that he lays out here in these three verses. The first one is this. He wants to impart some kind of a spiritual gift to them. So what kind of gift is this? I mean, why? Well, Whatever this gift is, it's going to, it's going to strengthen them. It's going to encourage them. It's going to build them up. And so we ask ourselves, well, what is this spiritual gift? Some people have thought that it is some miraculous gift that he would have to offer by laying on the hands as an apostle to them, and then they would be able to do miraculous things as well. Others maintain that Paul was referring just generally to the specific aspects of him being able to come there and, and preach the gospel, and the gospel that he preaches then is going to be infected in their lives and help them grow in their faith. Now, a second reason for him coming is for this mutual encouragement. So he says there in verse 12, that we may mutually be encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. It's, it's, he's going to be lifted up as well, just being with them. And so he looks forward to that. Haven't you ever had a time where you could not wait to get to visit with somebody because you knew just being around them was going to be an uplift in your spirit? 
And that's what he, he's looking forward to. I've heard about you guys. I can't wait to be around you and meet you and, and, and kind of interact with you and see where you are in faith. And it's going to encourage me, but it's also going to bring some encouragement to you. Uh, a third reason is, he says, is to harvest from among the citizens of Rome those who would be saved. And so he tells us that in verse 13. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but so far I've been uh, not pre- prevented from doing that. Here's why in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul can't wait to find people who don't know about Jesus and somehow pluck them from their death and bring them to life. There's another reason, he says, it's to preach the gospel to the Christians in Rome. And so he says, you know, under verse 14 and 15, I'm under the obligation both to Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And as I started reading that, I thought, why? If these are Christians, why does he want to preach the gospel to Christians? I mean, do they need the gospel? Isn't the gospel about bringing people to Christ? I mean, isn't, isn't that what it does? I mean, it's something we preach to the lost, and doctrine really is something that we teach to the saints, right? But I think the gospel is more than just the simple facts of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. There's something that goes deeper in that and motivates us in our faith in how we live on a daily basis. And so... In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, Paul makes this statement. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried and He rose on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You see, part of the gospel is the fact that Jesus died for our sins, and including in this faith are the deeper implications that the gospel that Paul wants to preach to them and is explaining to the Roman Christians, he says in, in chapter 16 of Romans, verse 25, that they are strengthened by it. He says, so now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. So the gospel not only is for the salvation of people who will hear about what Jesus has done for them, but the gospel is also doctrine in which we need to live and breathe, and it includes the aspect of how we live. Paul felt both, he says, obligation and eagerness to preach this gospel. Aphelotes is, is the word that he uses there for obligation. It also has an indication of, I'm an ower, I'm a debtor. I, I, I'm someone who is a transgressor. And so Paul's obligation, by, by owing something to someone, it's not just to Jesus Christ. He has an obligation and a debt even to sinners. Let's put it this way. His obligation to the sinner is like he's in the position of a lawyer whose client has just deceased 
and has left a rather sizable estate for his beneficiary. But the lawyer has to find that beneficiary and to demonstrate to him, you've received this gift, and then his job is to make sure that they get the fullness of that so that they can receive that inheritance. Paul has an obligation to preach the gospel to those whom Christ has called as well so that they understand what they get to inherit from Christ. Verse 15, Paul expresses his eagerness. See, he has a plan to preach a gospel that, that is just driving him. It's not under the sense of obligation only, but he wants to get there and he wants to communicate with them. And he's got this passion about introducing people to their salvation that is found only through Jesus Christ. So, as such, Paul's life was a living example of obedience of faith. I mean, this should be our attitude toward all of our Christian obedience as well. We have an obligation to obey God, but we should also have an eagerness and a desire and a passion to please Him in our obedience because of our faith. I am obligated because I ought to do it, but I'm eager because I want to. Let's kind of wrap all this up this week. And I asked myself a question. Did Paul ever make it to Rome? And he planned it before, but God didn't permit it. Maybe now, at last, he'll finally be able to get there. But here at the beginning, we just know that he wants to come there, but he's, he's been hindered from doing that. In any case, he's planning to go there. While he has no assurance that this is going to happen, he decides he's going to at least write them a letter of this gospel. So that if he doesn't get there, they'll at least know what he wants to say. But there's probably a whole lot more because, you know, a picture tells a thousand words, right? And you can read a book of a thousand words, but to make a movie of it, you still have to leave things out. Being in person is what he really desires. But if he can't get there, the next best thing is his letter. So he wants to make sure that they at least get this message from him. Martin Niemöller had the same passion for the gospel. Martin was a German pastor who, who defied Hitler and spoke out boldly for Christ. He was arrested and he was put in solitary confinement for eight years. All right? He was cut off from his family, from his church, and from everybody else except for his guards. But one day he came up with an idea. So each day he would pick up his table and then he would move it over to an area where there was a window really high and he would take his chair and he would put his chair on top of that table and he would climb up and on tiptoes he would be able to get up close to the window and then he would begin to read the scripture whenever he heard the scuffling of feet outside his window. Now, now, Martin didn't know if anybody ever listened or really heard him speaking and reading the gospel message. But that wasn't going to stop him. 
See, when you have a passion for people to discover who Jesus is and what he is offering to them, you will do whatever it takes to get that message across. It's not likely that you and I will ever be tested in the sense that Paul was tested or that we might be confined as Paul was eventually confined in a Roman prison or even be put in a position as Martin and have to be in solitary confinement to stand upon a table and upon a chair tiptoed. But we are given an opportunity every day in freedom to share the message of the gospel to anybody who has ears to hear and a mind to conceive what the gospel can do for them. What are we doing with it? What are we doing with it? Are we keeping it to ourselves or are we sharing it with other people? I felt embarrassed the other night. I took my dad shopping. Now that wasn't really the embarrassing part. <laughs> the embarrassing part was this. Struck up a conversation with a lady. And as we're talking just about stuff, she, she'd asked me about some paint and what it might do. And, and we're talking, carrying on things, and discover she's, she's originally from Greece, adopted and, and came here. Both parents were from other countries and, and well as migrated. And we're talking. And, and as we're about to end our conversation, my dad says, so do you have a church that you go to? And she says, you know, I've been looking for one. Now, I pray she's here today. Why did I say that first? Is that not my passion? But my dad... And after talking about the church and talking about faith and, and everything, finally as we're walking away, he says, he says, I can't let a day go by without doing that. Where is our passion? My goodness, your preacher should have been the first one to ask that question, and he didn't. Are you asking it in my place? I hope so. Let's pray. Father, you give us opportunities. Man, we've got the freedom right now to stand face to face with somebody and to tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet, we may be hesitant. Definitely, we're not prevented. Put a passion in us. You've called us to be holy. You have sanctified us and set us apart from what this world sees, and we are to live in a manner that drives people to know about Jesus. As we dig into this letter of Romans, 
as we see Paul's heart for people and a passion for your gospel, that it's life-changing not just in the moment but for all eternity. Father, use us to make a difference. It's in Jesus' name.